Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Tosharika Deka. I'm a PhD student at the University of Nottingham. Today, I'll be speaking to a very special guest, Professor Stephen Legg. Professor Legg is a professor of historical geography at the University of Nottingham, and we are a few steps away from each other's office. We will be talking about his 2022 book published by Cambridge University Press called Roundtable Conference Geographies. Professor Legg's research centers on the intersection of colonialism and anti-colonialism at various scales, from the domestic to that of the urban, province, state, empire, and the international. He has drawn on post-colonial theory, subaltern studies, and governmentality analytics in his previous monographs, which focus on daily spaces of colonialism, the abolition of tolerated red light districts in interwar British India, and the Roundtable Conference in 1930s London. He is the co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Historical Geography and will be the 2024 chair of the Royal Geographical Society with IBG's annual international conference. Hi, Steve, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Of course. So, you know, Steve, before we go into the details of the book, please tell me a bit about yourself. Sure, yeah. So I was trained as a geographer at the University of Cambridge. I did my undergraduate PhD and a research fellowship there and since then I've published two monographs prior to this one which emerged out of my doctoral research which focused on colonial Delhi. Uh, the first book in 2007 was a colonial governmentality uh, analytics um, hybrid with urban studies attempting to look at how old Delhi and new Delhi often viewed as stereotypical dual cities were governed as one political landscape in the period of Delhi being capital of the of the Raj from 1911 to 47. And my second work expanded outward from Delhi, um, looking at the intersection between civil society and the state in interwar India, focusing on the abolition of tolerated red light districts and using this moment to look at how we can think of scale and space intersecting. So looking at the brothel as a local, national, um, um, imperial, but also an international uh, problem uh, for people to solve, for various agencies to solve. I've also been lucky enough to work on a series of um, edited volumes, um, one with Tarek Jazeel on subaltern geographies, a second with Dean Heath on um, South Asian governmentalities, uh, an earlier sole edited book looking at the geographies of Carl Schmitt's um, work in terms of the NOMOS, which gave me another opportunity to think about the League of Nations and the challenge it posed to imperial sovereignty and that interest fed into uh, a co-edited volume called Placing Internationalism which looked at the role of um, international conferences in the 20th century and that um, emerged out of a product which this um, um, book also uh, emerged from which was a joint project on conferencing the international and that's where this monograph uh, emerged from. Thank you so much for that answer and I'm very intrigued to know about spaces so I think I'll follow up a more on your uh, previous monograph as well. Uh, so for our listeners just to give a background what was this roundtable conference about and to my understanding it was concluded that nothing much came out of the first conference so what was your intellectual inspiration behind writing this book? 
Well, it's it's in, in many ways, it's a very simple um, context. Um, we got an AHRC grant. Uh, I was the principal investigator on it um, from 2015 to 2020. And that project was called Conference in the International, a Cultural and Historical Geography of the Origins of Internationalism, 1919 to 39. And where that project emerged from was conversations between um, myself, someone who at my time was a PhD student, Jake Hodder, and my co-supervisor, Mike Heffernan. And it became clear we'd all got interests in the international as a post-First World War um, ideology, utopia, network, and political aspiration. But we were all working at it from very, very different angles. And this is, I think, a bit more of a common area of study now, but we're really interested in thinking about the different strands of internationalism. So we put together this project with Jake as the research associate, looking at the conferences of the Pan-African Congress, Mike Heffernan looking at the International Studies Conferences of the International Committee of Intellectual Cooperation of the League of Nations. And I propose looking at the Roundtable Conference, which seemed to be simultaneously known in South Asian studies, not much beyond that, but known in South Asian studies. And it was sort of known for not having worked, but it was also known as being the background for the Government of India Act of 1935, which laid the foundations for federation. So I was interested in this tension, really, between the conference, which everyone knew had failed, but which which was ultimately incredibly productive. So we put together this grant, it was successful, and I focused on the Roundtable Conference, which technically was one conference, but took place over three sessions over two years in London. What was the conference about? Well, in general, you can say that it was um, devised um, as a solution to a series of deadlocks that were paralyzing political life in 1920s India. In 1919, the Government of India Act um, had instigated this experimental system of diarchy, which devolved powers to the provinces and allowed Indian ministers to try their hand at uh, administering some of those devolved subjects. Uh, the 10-year review of diarchy had been brought forward because it was being so widely criticised, but it was led by the all-white Simon Commission, which created a huge backlash in India, and most um, political and social leaders had vowed to not accept the recommendations of the Simon report. A parallel report, the Butler report, into the Indian or princely states was due, and this was provoking some really serious tensions with the traditionally more loyalist princes, whereas tensions between the Indian National Congress and the Muslim League had been growing in the 1920s in the context of ongoing communal tension and disputes over um, the distribution of seats in provincial and central legislative assemblies. Um, so it was difficult to see what the path forward could be. So Viceroy Irwin convinced um, Simon to accept and to actually propose the idea that political and some social leaders from India would be invited direct to London to negotiate with um, the British government, cutting out really the government of India, which was felt to be the real sticking point, an authoritarian government who had often been directly involved in imprisoning the leaders of India, who were the key to progress in the next stage of constitutional development. So that's what happened. And as you say, it, it's known for not really achieving much, especially the first session. The reason for that is that Congress refused to attend. Um, they wanted dominion status, which we can return to later, to be the object, the sole object of the conference, what it was working towards. In line with the emerging international conference method, 
conferences were supposed to have an open agenda. And the refusal to have Dominion status as the stated aim of the conference meant that Congress um, refused to attend. They adopted Pernaswaj, complete independence as their objective, and they didn't come to London. But the other thing which everyone knows about um, the Roundtable Conference, that it ultimately laid the groundwork for federation, is why actually the first session was more successful than the Congress narrative would have you believe. On the opening plenary, um, Tej Bahadur Sapri on behalf of British India, the Maharaja of Bikinia on behalf of the princes both come out in favour of an all India federation, um, overcoming the existing distinction between the princely and British India. So this is the conference that failed, but was a productive failure. And that's ultimately the framework I adopt in the book as I try to explore and what really happened at the conference. Indeed, um, that's what I was also, in fact, uh, I, I could kind of grasp from it, that it kind of laid the foundation of the fate of the India's Federation, which is very interesting. And, um, well, you know, in school, we had to do all the roundtable conferences, in fact, as, a, as part of our history classes. So now I can kind of relate back that why those were important. Um, okay, so without giving away many details, just to give a background about the book to our listeners, structurally, the book has four main sections and an introduction. Part one is about geographical imagination. Part two is conference infrastructures. Part three is about the conference city, which I'm very intrigued about. And part four is about representation. I also want to give a disclaimer. I am not a historian, so please forgive me if I ask anything silly. It is just mere lack of knowledge. Uh, in the first section of the book, you have set the tone for the book and have explained the different complexities around the conference and how it impacted India's constitutional history. Um, what kind of role does this geographical imagination played in shaping the fate of the Federation? Mm. Well, it's a great question. What, what I make the case for throughout the book is that I'm trying to contribute to some amazing existing scholarship on this period and some of which touches on the conference. And I'm first and foremost, you're not an historian. I'm not an historian either. I'm a, I'm a historical geographer. So what I try to do is structure the book so that it, it presents some ways of doing history geographically. So in the first section, I talk about geographical imaginations, a term propagated in, in geography by Derek Gregory, but drawing from um, Edward Said. And what I suggest as a way of framing the book really is that there are four different ways of imagining the geography of India that are at play here. The first is federation. It seemingly takes a lot of people by surprise and the all India nature of federation was a surprise, but it wasn't new. People had been thinking about federation as a way of organizing princely or British India. Simon um, recommended federation as, as the ultimate game for British India but not an immediate one. But what Federation did was eclipse two existing forms of thinking about the geography of India. And I suggest both of them were part of not, not so much of divide and rule, but more of deferral, and that those forms of deferral had to be moved beyond. The first form of de deferral was temporal, and that was this ephemeral thing of dominion status. Again, it's, it's one of those terms which, which we're taught and we learn, but it's not really much understood now, and it wasn't much understood at the time, um, because dominion status really means not now. It's a deferral of becoming a dominion. The dominions were really white settler um, 
parts of the empire, the foundations of the, the Commonwealth, largely autonomous, although at, even that wasn't clear. The Statute of Westminster was being drafted at the time of the first session. So even what dominion meant at this time was unclear. But Viceroy Erwin and the Marcus of Reading were both absolutely clear that dominion status had no legal meaning and that it was something which needed to be moved beyond. The second form of deferral was, was what I position as a spatial form of deferral. A diarchy wasn't in the future. Diarchy had emerged really quite quickly. But what it did is say, rather than not now, it said not here. So it excluded um, Indian ministers from governing all um, subjects at the level of the province and certainly at the level of the centre. And as one commentator at the conference um, put it, it was a patronising form of kindergarten in which administrators, Indian administrators, would learn the art of political governing. It was impractical and everyone agreed it needed to be moved beyond. So the federal announcement um, allowed, the story was that uh, it was going to allow India to move beyond both dominion status and darky. What I show is, and others have shown, is actually those two uh, imaginaries re-emerged at the moment of independence. But Federation allowed, for the time being, to move beyond those imaginaries. What remained, however, was the fourth way of imagining the geography of India, and that imaginary was communal. This was, of course, the traditional means of divide and rule. India was supposedly structured through religious communities, and that was positioned as the primary um, block to constitutional progress at the conference. It was important to settle the communal question before moving on to other, thing, other things like federal structure. Now, at the conference, communalism becomes a really quite a quantitative issue. It's about minorities and majorities and distribution of seats and voting rights. When Gandhi did attend the session as the sole Congress representative at the second um, session, his position was grant us the powers they're requesting and, and we Indians in India can solve this question. The British absolutely refused, said without reservations and safeguards, no constitutional planning could be um, secured. And that ultimately wasn't solved by the conference method. It was solved by the communal award, which is outside of this book, but really is one of the main direct um, outputs of the conference. And it um, presents the way in which that communal block was likewise resolved in trying to move towards a federal um, future geographical imagination of India. Thank you for that answer, Steve. Um, it seems like there could be another book out of this. Please, uh, <laughs> the second part of that you said. Um, uh, so in the second section, you've explored the infrastructure of the conference, uh, its political connotation and infrastructure as object of knowledge. You've particularly focused on the role of subaltern diplomatic staff played in the conference's functioning. Uh, could you expand a bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. So if the first section was about geographical imaginations, that suggests a scale um, above that of the city or even the region. What I tried to do in that section was to show that federation and dominion, diarchy and communism were all being debated in these really small spaces of the committee room, the palace, the tea room, the dinner. What I do in the second section is explicitly focus in on those small scales and suggest that there are three infrastructures in the expanded notion of infrastructure being worked through urban studies that we can think of here. The first is the conference method itself as an infrastructure. It enabled these people to come together. It structured time. It structured who could speak and who could do what and who could say what. 
And what I show is that um, Secretary of State Ferendia Ben was explicitly drawing upon the international model of international conferences being um, emerging from Geneva and the League of Nations. He was committed to this idea of a supposedly open agenda, allowing the delegates to frame and work the conference, but it was a method that was easily uh, manipulable and was turned to um, explicitly imperial aims, not through the restricting speech, but through allowing open speech, but in a way that only certain conclusions could be reached. The second infrastructure I look at is the palace and the things in the palace that enabled the conference to take place. That the first two sessions were in St. James's Palace, the third in the robing room of the House of Lords in the Palace of Westminster. And I look at some really micro objects that facilitated conversations. The table itself, which famously wasn't round, it was oval. I look at the emerging technological um, capacities of communication. So the cameras were brought into the palace. They were especially rigged up for the concluding sessions. Um, microphones were used to broadcast speeches to um, journalists uh, in neighboring seats. Telegrams were used to communicate quickly um, with, um, with India. So we can think of the physical in infrastructure of the building. But what you talk about is, is the idea of, of, of people as a form of infrastructure. Obviously, the conference wouldn't work without attendees, that's clear. But what I look at in this section are, are the staff, how the conference was staffed. And I, I talk about two different tiers, really, um, of relatively autonomous elite and subaltern staff that helped the conference take place. So at the elite level, there are experts who are called upon to come and give evidence and assist debates. There are secretaries with a capital S of each delegation who provided information, interpreted um, formal documents, aided with the drafting of speeches. The government of India was technically excluded from the conference, but they sent along advisors who embedded themselves within um, the conference and had a, a really quite deep and profound impact. Um, in terms of the subaltern approaches to how we can think about this diplomatic event, I, I refer to the subaltern in this sense um, in, in two ways. There's a body of literature on subaltern geopolitics I refer to later to look at how India was always positioned as a second um, tier diplomatic um, entity. But I also draw on the work of Madeleine um, Heron to think about subaltern diplomatic staff. These were the staff who made international events happen. They did the labor of international and diplomatic discourse. Often these were women doing a vast amount of work. Um, often it was taking notes and providing reports, um, the stenographers, carrying chits, cleaning places, getting food ready, hosting. So this um, um, work was not entirely silent, but the traces were provided. And we need to go two different ways, I think, to um, tell these subaltern stories. One way is quite quantitative. Um, you can often chart the number of people who are working. You can sometimes chart their hours, and you can look at that division of labor in terms of gender as well as class. There are many times in terms of qualitative information when these sort of laborers leave um, collections to archives, their voice finds their way into the archive. It does happen occasionally. But what we do find are many people formally noting 
the contribution of these people to the working of the conference. So it's not so much a case of us trying to argue that they were significant. People at the time were going to great pains to log the fact that these people were making the conference happen. Because the conference took place in London, most of these people were white, but some of the princes did bring large staff with them, and many of those staff were relatively menial, and sometimes we get a name of those people, but but not really much more. That's very, very uh, fascinating, Steve. Uh, just to give you a background, I used to work in conferencing. Uh, so when I was reading this bit, yes, I was actually part of a larger group where we ha had the responsibility of uh, arranged conferences back in India, almost a decade back, in fact. And um, so it has hit home uh, that you're almost silent and you are basically taking care of everything and strategically arranging things. So, so yeah, I, I, I saw a lot of comparison, to be honest with you. And I think this could be a fantastic, um, you know, comparative study again. Uh, and if you look at current status also, and the fact that uh, you said that India was treated as a second entity, and would it be the same today if we look at that? Probably not. Uh, so, yeah, that was very interesting. Thank you for that. Uh, so in the third section, and this is very fascinating because I am interested in spaces, I'm interested in cities, um, you've explored the role of London as the conference city, like that of hotels, clubs and societies for delegates. Um, I would like to quote this, and I think it's important. Um, the geography of the British Indian delegates was more diffuse, although some delegates found lodging at London's exclu exclusive hotels, page 224. Uh, here, several discrimination can be seen, like, for instance, that of uh, eating spaces for privilege and not so. It'll be interesting for the listeners to know what role the city played in making these distinctions. Yeah, you mentioned, I think this is your favourite section. Everyone yes. loves this section. Oh. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> loves this section. Um, so I, this is the third section in which I try to do something which I suppose is more familiar as a form of geography. It's that, thinking about... the. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's that, that's the whole point, because we look at London and of course, because we've been living in the UK, London is like the most familiar uh, location for us. So and as, as the present state, and this is what I think the reason that most people have found it fascinating. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. It's it, it's familiar enough. This is 1930. There are buildings, there are places where you can still go that, that figure. But what is interesting is you're looking at this point in which an international city, I'm sorry, an imperial city is becoming international and it's becoming what later become a global city. So we see infrastructures emerging that we now take for granted, but weren't actually that familiar in the past. So the technologically rigged up palace that can become a conference center. The restaurant scene, at this point, the good restaurants were all in hotels. The other restaurants, which were just emerging, were were a, a sort of new scene that people were unsure of um, socially. Cinemas, theatre were changing, becoming more open, but still censored. So this is the most explicitly, I think, obviously geographical um, chapter. I suppose my problem with this material is that it is very, it was very possible that this book would sort of become a sort of nostalgia fest. This is, there's lots of Downton Abbey, Raj nostalgia potential here. So I was trying not to get too obsessed with the dresses and the cocktail parties and the sort of Evelyn War, Brighthead revisited stuff. But it is there and it has to be there because it was an absolutely pivotal part of the conference. Hospitality was considered to be vital. And I make the argument in this section that 
these spaces continued the work of the conference. You'd do your formal work, you'd get changed, and you'd have the conference dinner, like academics have. A lot of the stuff happens at these events. The, the, the conversations happen in hotels, in restaurants. I've got a whole chapter on um, homes and the way in which women acted as hostesses uh, in the city. But not all of this um, amplified the disparities through which delegates were dealt with at the conference. Some were very privileged and were invited to all the dinners, others barely leave a trace. Wealth was hugely important and that further amplified the, the distinctions between the delegates. So the Aga Khan had his suite at the Ritz, the Maharaja of Bikinir always stayed at the Carlton and was known by um, high society. Many others had trained or worked in London and knew it well, and that means knowing where to spend your money well. Other delegates, however, could get, could barely get by on the accommodation allowance they were given. Tellingly, that they were also given £100, which is quite generous at the time, for clothing so that they wouldn't be disadvantaged by how they looked. So these, I trace these um, distinctions across three spaces, um, um, hotel and accommodation, dining and uh, at homes. Now, most of the big hotels, as I said, were in restaurants. There were these huge dinners put on by the government, but also by wealthy um, delegates reported on in India. Uh, it wasn't really possible for me to make this book about the reception of the conference in India, but it is clear that these dinners were picked up upon during civil disobedience with Congress leaders in jail, also the beginning of the, the Depression, very little money in India. And you see these delegates literally with golden um, garlands at these dinners. But what I was, I think, more interested in was where the where the people were eating outside of these times. People weren't wealthy. They didn't have access to um, knowledge of the restaurant scene. So there were emerging sort of middle class, relatively cheap socialising spaces like the Lions Tea Rooms, which were used a lot and come up in people's um, diaries. But also I was very interested to learn about the Indian restaurant scene, which was quite diverse at the time. Um, there were cheaper sort of student eateries in Bloomsbury and Leicester Square. There was Shafi's in um, Gerald Street in Soho, which I think was the conference um, dining, Indian dining centre. There's a great advert I've got in the book where they basically pitch themselves as the conference dining space. But there was also the more elite uh, Veraswamis on Regent Street that had been set up by a British man with experience of India to appeal directly to those who had experience of colonial India. So within though, even within that scene, we see differentiations of race and of class. And what's clear is that the delegates were at risk of exposure to the racism which Indian and other non-white visitors to the city clearly regularly faced. I read the United India book published in London for Indians in the UK, which talks about the regular racism which visitors felt. And that was present in all different spaces. Um, there was a real concern that there would be a political incident if men in London attempted to take Indian visitors to their clubs when non-white non guests were really discouraged. So they effectively set up a delegates club at Chesterfield Gardens, which I spent a lot of time looking at in which delegates could stay and host without having to engage with a potentially racist um, London. We know from some of the less well-off delegates, Dr. S.K. Data, his, his wife in a memoir said that she tried to shield him from the number of hotels that refused to take this less well-off um, Indian. 
And the government were really worried about this. The editor of the Times was approached to, in an attempt to encourage articles that would set a tone for these visiting um, delegates. And the press is actually really interesting as a space for attempting to cultivate an atmosphere in which they'd be received. But the press, as I talk about in the final section, was also a place in which the conference played out its politics and attempted to represent itself. How fascinating this story, sir. And I think I recommend everyone to you know, at least read this chapter. And I've always felt that London has always been so intriguing. I mean, it's been part of our history. It's been part of our current affairs. It's been part of our date. Now it's part of our lives now because we live in the UK. Um, I, th I thought this was very fascinating. And thank you for writing that, in fact. Um, okay, so, so now, now the fourth section, um, your focus on the concept of representation. How was the final geography of the conference perceived, uh, considering its representation or lack of it? Well, what I didn't want the book to do was to telescope in endlessly from these broad scales of the Dominion and to just focus on the conference body, which is one option. There's a lot of work in international diplomacy studies about the diplomat's body. And that turn to the body is really important. Body and Society, the journal, was established, I think, in 1984. The turn to the body and the performative is really important, but it's not everything. And what I wanted to do is to move towards the afterlife of the conference and this view of it as a failure. And that really is essential to think, take, takes us to the question of the representational. Now, in geography, as in many other disciplines, the question of representation dominated the 80s, 90s through the post-colonial um, lens through the Orientalist emphasis on 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 representation, um, but there has been a sort of backlash against that through the new materialism in geography through non-representational theory. But representations are absolutely vital, and they're actually quite spatial in terms of how this event gets communicated out and how people consider what happened within it. So, in the final section, I have one chapter where I talk about petitions and protests. Um, on protests both in the pages of newspapers in London and on the streets. So we look really at forms of resistance as a representational struggle over what was happening at the conference. And in particular, I'm really interested by um, narratives um, from communist campaigners in, in, the, in London, who really, I think, helped people at the time and myself crack this question over what would it mean for the conference to have succeeded? or failed. And whilst many people were arguing the conference failed, um, Sacklatvala and others were arguing it was actually a massive triumph for capitalism. So they opened this question. It's the question of failure I returned to in the last chapter, where I look at this consensus that the conference failed, and I don't try to prove that it succeeded. What I ask is, why did everyone seemingly, why did all the major players really um, bind this narrative of failure? And I think everyone had something to gain by branding it a failure. Um, Labour and Congress had withdrawn from the conference proceedings, so they denounced it in their absence. The Tories, Hindu and Muslim representatives, had to sell this deal to constituencies who often didn't want much progress in particular lines, so failure was useful. And Bedker claimed that it failed because Gandhi had crushed the communal award with his fast. And the princes were getting very worried about what a strong central federation would mean. So they um, they bought into a degree of failure to, to attempt to sell this deal to their constituencies. So I conclude the book with this 
metaphor of sacrifice, really, that the conference was sacrificed on this altar of failure, but almost everybody had something to gain from this conference, which allowed everyone to move on. It didn't necessarily solve the problems, but it allowed people to move on from communal deadlock. It allowed at least the debate to happen about Princely and British India moving on. It allowed the Conservatives to get over the sort of Churchill-led diehard um, campaigners to say that, you know, this isn't a success for India. It's the most, the least progress we could have we could have got through. So I think the conference is sacrificed, and if we continue to buy into the failure narrative, what we do is perpetuate a trick that was pulled at the time, which fulfilled a function then, but I argue isn't actually that useful now. So I suggest that we need to revisit the failure narrative, not to claim that it, it was a success, but to look at how it was productive, even if in many ways it did fail. So the next question focuses on the methodology and the writing process. And this is something I have personal interest in because I'm intrigued by the process of doing things. Uh, so what were the challenges you faced while conducting the research? And how do you place your work in terms of methodological contribution? So what was really interesting working as part of a team was looking at the um, looking at the differences in terms of archives and experiences between us. So Jake Hodder was working on the Pan-African Congress, a relatively small organization, not one which was covered in the press because of lack of interest, also because many members of the press didn't want that form of black internationalism to work. With mine, the, the comparison was really stark. There was there's so much on the Roundtable conference people really sort of went crazy for this this issue it was there were celebrities there was the drama of gandhi there were major all the big london hosts and hostesses were involved so the huge amount here but the prop the problem which was also an opportunity was that a lot of the state archival material had been well studied by these amazing works i mentioned earlier rj moore's yeah. indian crisis ian copland on the princes and others but those archives, through being so dense, I don't want to suggest there's a sort of conscious plot here, but through presenting so much material, they, they encourage a certain form of study and therefore certain types of conclusions. And what I wanted to do is to get beyond that viewpoint. So I tried to move into a sort of third sense of um, the subaltern here, which is subaltern spaces, a concept um um, worked on by Tarek Jazeel and others, which is what are the, the marginal spaces that we don't tend to think of as constituting politics or geography or history or diplomacy? And to get into those spaces, it meant going to much more diverse sources. I was really taken aback by how rich the press sources were. The, the, the broadsheets had lots of fascinating tidbits, but the tabloid press was fascinating because they also wanted to get into these marginal spaces. They wanted new stories or backstories on these delegates, going through as many letters as possible, smaller collections, often finding some really fascinating insights that allowed me to get away from the big stories. So I say at the start of the book, there's not actually that much about the plans for federation in my book because it's been done brilliantly, nor is there that much about Gandhi. He's He draws all the attention to him and he was only one delegate for one session. So I tried to get beyond the, the, the standard spaces and objects to tell a much broader story. And the question, therefore, was once you've got this vast array of material, 
how you bring it back together. So the, the, the tactic really was to split it up, reorganize it through different geographical framings, the imagination, infrastructure, the city and representation, and then organize the material, but try to do it so that there is, there is, a, there is a chronological logic to the book. It does start from the earlier Dominion Diarchy stuff and it ends with failure. So the challenge was really to find a way of um, presenting that material in new ways that retains a spatial emphasis, but also allows there to be a chronology that guides us um, through the book. So that, I suppose, was the challenge. Um, and in terms of method, um, there were various things I wanted to do. Um, I hope this will be read as a broader argument for how historical geography can contribute to historical and South Asian studies. Um, one of the things I take from my broader situation as a cultural and historical geographer is the bringing together of material and representational studies. Throughout the book, I try to bring together studies of, for instance, the actual round table at the center of the round table conference, not a metaphor, the table, how it was built, where it ended up, what it was there for, but also the interpretation of St. James's Palace through its artwork, through its history, through its architecture. Um, second, in terms of method, I, I've kept returning back to this idea of um, Subaltern in the expanded sense through which Subaltern studies have been figured over the last 30, 40 years or so. And what I try to do is to find a space for the relatively minor figures and their spaces. And I do that through word um but i also try to do that visually through mapping the locations of events where in london were people staying that's one map where in london were they dining which at homes were they going to whose domestic spaces were they invited to so you can do that visually in terms of mapping but also what i really like doing is using um photographs from newspapers often um the more visually minded, the graphic, the Illustrated Indian um, Weekly. And what you often find there is that when showing the setting up of St. James's Palace, I think intentionally the photographers often included women setting up the spaces, cleaning or organising the pens on the round table. And it's not much, but you get a sense that there's a, there's a visual example there of finding a space for non-elite um, uh, actors. And I suppose, yeah, more broadly, the method really is that of historical geography. I, I say in the introduction and conclusion that you could have done this as a history, as a political scientific study or a political philosophical study. And the object really was to do this as an historical geography and help people think about how historical geography has something to offer, which isn't just the map or space. Right. And I believe that it has a lot of meticulous work gone into, a lot of time taken. And that takes me to the next question, what exactly is a writing process? And if you could share the process, it would be of great benefit to our listeners, particularly early career researchers. And, you know, what is that one should learn while, at least while you know, putting a monograph together? Mm. Well, this was a very new experience for me. Um, it was, I've never had this diversity of material before. Um, something which was unanticipated, but really formative was that when we put this bid together, we had to put in the AHRC language of the time together a pathway to impact. So we had to show how we were going to communicate our results to non-academics. And we hosted a, a, a month-long exhibition at the Royal Geographical Society. There's a website, it's called Spaces of Internationalism, where we made that exhibition permanent and online. But we had to think about the frames that would relate this material and 
our shared material to a broader public, but would also, because it was being hosted at a geography society, how could we use geographical frames that were relatable, that weren't too abstract or theoretical or jargony? And what I found was having done that, when I came back to the material, those frames unbidden had come with me. So this fourfold geographical distinction came out of trying to think about how could we relate this to non-geographers, which is really what the book does. So I had those framings. And what I, what I think we all try to do is to balance style and narrative with structure and framing. Um, so having got that framing in place, I then just did a lot and it was months probably about a year of really detailed work fragmenting the sources and putting them back together for the first time ever I used a piece of software I used Envivo which um I crashed so many times I wouldn't necessarily recommend it wholeheartedly but it, the reason I liked it is so much of my material were in pdfs word documents photographs downloads put them all, all, all up coded them and then eventually, when I came to each chapter, it was pulling together the codes into a really very detailed plan. Um, and having done all that work, what I then tried to do um, in this work was to try to loosen up the writing a bit. In my previous work, I've been a very sort of Foucauldian analytical person, lots of categories, subcategories, interpretive tools. With this one, there's so much work gone into the framing that I tried to relax into, and to be honest, enjoy the writing um, a bit more. And I suppose the context for that, um, which I only mentioned very briefly in the acknowledgements really, is that this became a lockdown book. Um, I started, I had a, I had a, I was, I was on research leave in the spring semester of, um, of 2020 and, that meant that a lot of this was written in, in lockdown. So what I also did like lots of others was I, I used reading fiction as a way of sort of soothing, <laughs> soothing out the boredom. So Hilary Mantel was someone who I'd been a long-term fan of, but I read her final book whilst writing this up. And obviously she's a, she's a brilliant historical scholar, but she writes in a way which tries to relate the, the human side of these stories and I think I was trying to do that a bit more to offset the very deeply structured nature of of the book um so for me it was a lot of coding a lot of fragmenting a lot of structuring and when I'd done that trying to write in a way that wasn't too too clunky so that I suppose was my my method <laughs> That's very interesting. Um, I use Envyware as well, and I do find it uh, very helpful. Yeah. Um, so do you reckon that, you know, um, as an academic, obviously, you know, and qualitative, when you do qualitative research, do you reckon that one should actually learn a bit of software skill? Did, did you did you really find it helpful? Yeah, well, I, I suspended the writing of one book to write this one, and the previous one was done totally on paper. So lots of photocopies from Team Murti in the National Archives, put in folders, and I spent months and months going through it, creating plans that would literally be file, Xerox, page three, so, and it, it took months. So I trialed this one un, un, in an unanticipated way. It was perfect for lockdown because everything was scanned. All my photocopies were scanned, turned into PDFs, uploaded. So. Anywhere in the world you were, as long as you had decent internet, you could access all your materials, which would not have been possible with the previous project. So it was great. The coding stuff makes you engage with your material in a way you, you might not do 
elsewhere. I also remember coding in airports, wherever I, you had a spare hour, I just go in and code stuff. So I, I think it is useful, but it's it's useful in the way in which it enables you to do what you we've always done. And that is always only one step in the process. At the end, when it produced these connections and fragments for me, I actually went back to my old fashioned printed out chapter plans. And I wrote using that as something which had fulfilled its function. So it, it was very useful to me, but it did crash a lot. <laughs> and, and there were certain things it wouldn't do for me. So I'm um, I, I might I might use it again. It depends on the nature of my material. But if you've got a large amount of material that spans um, a, a number of media, I think it's very useful. Well, uh, but thanks for sharing that. I think that's very useful. In fact, what I do is I usually put everything on Excel and then I, I upload the Excel file. Uh, then I've already organized them and then it then you know NVWay can gives me more organized data. I mean, if anyone needs any tip on that. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, we're almost towards the end of this conversation. Uh, but I would like to know what are your next projects and how do you decide what you want to do next? Right. So I'm I'm currently just finishing off um another book, which seems like it's coming close close on the tails of this one. But in 2015, I had a fellowship to write up uh, a book, which was the follow-up to my first book on on Delhi, which is called Spaces of Colonialism. And I always planned to write a sort of follow-up called Spaces of Anti-Colonialism, which is a focus on Congress orchestrated mass movements in, in the city, really comparing civil disobedience movement from the 1930 to 32, 33 to quit India 42, 43 with looking at the legacies of those movements in the 30s and the, and the 40s. Um, I've returned to that, which in many ways is a very different book to this one, but I've realised they're actually remarkably similar. They're both capital cities. They're both focused on the interwar. Well, the case I made in the first book was that you can't consider colonial governmentalities we're looking at how they're constantly responding to anti-colonial provocations likewise obviously you need to understand um the colonial government's reaction to these mass movements to think about the cities but this book it's a longer time span it's sort of 20 years and it, it, the, the geography of this book really is the spaces of the city both new and old delhi as places in which people were recruited and politics took place so that project after a five-year hiatus is concluding and then the next work is also going to be focused on Delhi's concluding some longer running work on looking at the geographies of Hindu Muslim communities um, in new and old Delhi and the run up to partition in, in 1947. Wow how interesting is that and can I just share Delhi and London are two of my favorite cities it's almost like you love them and then you hate them. You it just it almost that kind of feeling. Sometimes you can't deal with the city, and sometimes there's so much and there's so much of history in Delhi. I can't wait to read that book. I'm definitely Absolutely. looking forward to it. Well, I haven't yes. I haven't been able to get back to India. I've not been to Delhi since 2017. So I think I'm gonna have some radical dislocation <laughs> with, with with what the city's become. So I'm I'm looking forward to, but also really dreading going to Delhi, <laughs> seeing what's happened. Now winters might be better. <laughs> Done the summers, yeah. Um, okay, so this is the last question, and I ask this to all my guests. What is that one book that you would recommend everyone should read? 
Thank you for giving me notice of this question. I almost wish you hadn't because I've been going, <laughs> I've been going through trying to think of what that book would be. But I've actually returned to a book which which helped me open this book. It helped me interpret a, an incredible image with which I opened the first chapter, which is a cartoon, a political caricature of people gathered around a, a round table. But the cartoonist has actually depicted India with mountains and temples in the middle of the in the middle of the table. And the book I went back to which is a book I often return to, is Samarthi Ramaswamy's 2010, The Goddess and the Nation, Mapping Mother India. And as I said, one of the things I want to do in this book is to make the case for studying material geographies and representational geographies together. And even though she's not a geographer, I think of her as an honorary geographer, um, what Ramaswamy does in this book is show absolutely how those two things need to be brought together and work brilliantly when brought together. So um, that is my absolute must-read book. Oh, wonderful. And any uh, fiction? Fiction? Oh, what have I been reading? I, I've i been going everywhere I can recently to, to, um, to get inspiration. So I've just finished volume four of the Dune series, Frank Herbert's incredible, incredible sci-fi um, novels, which anticipate seemingly every current trend in geography, the Anthropocene, the more than human, the technological, um, extractive colonialism, settler colonialism, um, psychology, um, it's seemingly everything is there. Um, I've been told to avoid disappointment, I might not want to do volumes five and six, but the first four have been an absolute blast. Oh, wonderful. Okay, um, Steve, thank you so much. It has been a great pleasure. Um, we made it a bit long to do this, but I can't thank you enough for agreeing to do this podcast. And I learned a lot from this conversation. Um, is, is there anything you would like to say to our listeners before we sign off? Um, I would like to say, um, if you're an author, submit your book to this podcast series. It's fantastic. And if you're an early career scholar, I'd really recommend... Um, doing these interviews it's a great service and hopefully um you'll also get something out of it i had a great time